You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. to invite up, uh, oh, there he is. Hi, Brian. Uh, introduce you to Brian Kaufman, who's going to be opening God's Word for us this morning. Brian's been a part of our uh, this cohort of uh, preachers prepping to open God's Word here in the Psalms um, this spring. And so um, Brian and his wife Anna have been a part of River City now for 2016, 2019. Um, he'll tell you more about himself here in just, uh, just a little bit. Um, they're part of the Lindstrom Herges community group, and I just want to pray for him, and then uh, we'll go to God's word together. How's that? Come up here, brother. Father, thank you for the, again for this morning, and we just confess along with the, the words we just sang that we are in desperate need of you, and so we ask, please, that in your kindness, in your mercy, and by your Holy Spirit, you would encourage and equip and challenge your people through your word, and that you'd use your servant, Brian, um, to do that here in this place this morning. Thank you for the work of your spirit uh, already in his preparation, and we pray that our hearts would be ready to receive from your word through your servant. So would you bless him as he communicates? Would you bless us by opening our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and our minds to understand what you have for us from your word? Speak to your people this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. As Pastor Jake had said, uh, my name is Brian Kaufman. My wife and I have been coming to River City since 2016 for her and 19 for me. Um, And I have the pleasure of reading God's word to you guys today. Um, A little bit more about us. I serve here on the strike team and with kids ministry here. And Anna also um, serves at River City Kids. If you are not attending community group already, I know our lives have been blessed by attending the Lindstrom Herges community group. Um, And if you aren't attending one already, I would encourage you to find one that works on a day for you and become a part of that community to dive more into God's word with those people there. With that said, welcome to book two of the Psalms. As a church, we began reading through the summer psalms in June of 2020. And last Sunday, we closed book one of the psalms, and today we are opening book two. If you're wondering how book two is going to be different from book one, um, you're not alone. Book one is often summarized as a collection of confrontation psalms, where the psalmist, which is typically David, tries to make sense of the conflict caused by sin between God and humanity. In book one, we heard a lot about the confrontation that David faced between him and the nations. But moving into book two, we see that theme shift from confrontation to communication. While a major way that the psalmists were interacting with the nations previously was through confronting and warring with them, Book two is more focused on communicating with the nations. Before we go any further, our strike team will be coming down the aisles with Bibles. 
If you would like a Bible, you can slip your hand in the air and they will get one in your hand. If you don't have one already, you can take that home as a gift from River City. Moving into Psalm 42 specifically, in what we've been calling verse zero, the all caps letters between the title of the psalm that your translators put there and verse one, we find three important pieces of information about Psalm 42. First, it is addressed to the choir master. So Psalm 42 is likely a song that um, the authors wrote to be sung in corporate worship, much like what we just finished doing here today. Second, we also read that it is a maskeel. If you happen to be reading the New King James Version, they actually translate this to a contemplation. Most other translations will keep it in its Hebrew maskeel. This word comes from the same word as we often translate to get insight or to understand. So a lot of Bible scholars believe maskeels to be songs that are written to make people wise in some way. If you take this interpretation, Psalm 42, the one we're going to be looking at very shortly, is likely written to teach people how to lament wisely. And finally, we learn that this psalm was written by the sons of Korah. This group is named as the author of at least 11 psalms, most of which are going to be preached by the end of this summer. From 2 Chronicles 20:19, we see that the sons of Korah are likely a group of priests that were in part responsible for leading Israel in worship. Taken together then, Psalm 42 could have been one of the songs that the son of, of Korah sang with Israel to lead them in worship and make them wise in the way of lamenting. So with that in mind, my main point and my hope for you this morning is that we can see Psalm 42 as a song that teaches us how to lament wisely through our faith in the living God. With that said, let's open your Bibles to Psalm 42 if you haven't already. If you're using the Bibles that the strike team handed out, it should be on page 268. Psalm 42 reads, to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? 
As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. When looking at Hebrew poetry, like what is presented to us in the Psalms, it's often helpful for us to recognize how Hebrew poetry differs from modern American poetry that we may be used to. In modern American poetry, we tend to focus on rhyming and cadence and maybe some repetition. And The Little Mermaid, Sebastian's song, Under the Sea, highlights perfectly what modern American poetry may look like. Sebastian sings to us, under the sea, under the sea, darling, it's better, down where it's wetter, under the sea. The song's got rhyme, has a beat to it, and it's got repetition, and it's sung by a crab, which is not typical of modern poetry, but it's fun. The style of poetry we see in the Psalms and throughout the Bible, however, is a little bit different from our typical Little Mermaid um, notions of poetry. The Psalms are focused heavily on repetition, but in a more sophisticated kind of way. The common type of repetition that's used in biblical poetry are called chiasms. There's a couple ways that you can do this, as you'll see on the screen behind me, but the idea is to have a central point and then surround that with related mirrored ideas. That central hinge point in the middle, um, so B and then B apostrophe on the right or the X on the left side. Um, these hinge points are the most important piece that you want your readers to walk away with. So while it's less common to use chiasms in modern poetry, we still sometimes see it. For example, in her conversation with someone who's more new to the area, a popular Hawaiian poet once wrote the memorable line, Ohana means family, and family means nobody gets left behind. Here, family is the hinge point. Leela wants Stitch to know more about what family is, and Stitch walks away having a better idea of what family is because of the context that surrounded it. Looking back at Psalm 42 now, we can better understand how the sons of Korah use chiasms to structure and highlight the main point of their poem. So working from the outside in, we can see that the psalm is bookended by talking about a longing for God's presence, which surrounds the psalmist describing their distress. Continuing toward the middle, we see the psalmist remembering God's faithfulness, both in the company of other believers and when isolated from others. And finally, the hinge point, what this psalm is all about, the psalmists are telling themselves to put their trust in God. So in light of this structure, we're going to also work from the outside in, taking those mirrored sets of circumstances one at a time. My hope in doing that is to show us that while we face spiritual longing and while we will face despair in life, we can and we ought to remember the faithfulness of God to his people and trust him in that. So similarly, I have three main points for you this morning. First one is longing for the living God in the midst of earthly distress. That's going to come from verses 1 to 3 and 7 to 10. Point two, remembering God's faithfulness in all circumstances. We'll pull that from verses 4 
and 6. And my final point, our hinge point, if you will, is hoping in God in all things. That's verse 5, and it repeats itself in verse 11. So longing for the living God in the midst of earthly distress. Let's reread verses 1 to 3 and 7 to 10. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Have you ever been thirsty before? Not like a, I could use a sip of water kind of thirst or a kind of thirst that you might have after eating something really salty, but a deep thirst that you're not sure what's going to happen if you don't drink something soon. I spent a summer during college in Arizona, and while there, I picked up the pastime of hiking in the gorgeous mountain ranges in Phoenix. One of these hikes that I remember, I was hiking across South Mountain. It's a park with over 50 miles of rocky and sandy trails, weaving in and out of the mountain. And as the responsible young man I was, I grabbed some water. As an irresponsible college student, I did not plan my course ahead of time. After about an hour and a half of hiking, I went to take a sip of water, only to find out that my bottle was as dry as the 115 degree heat beating on my face. As I made my slow and shadeless journey back to my car, my thirst became increasingly evident. My tongue was dry, I was panting, searching for anybody else on the trail who might have some water for me. Finding nobody like that, I trudged back to my oven-hot car, hopped in, drove to the gas station, ripped the cap off a water bottle, poured it down my mouth. I was thirsty, and I was desperately in need of the cool and life-giving relief that that water gave me. That feeling of desperation, the feeling of not knowing what would happen if I didn't get that water bottle soon, that's the feeling that the psalmists are using to describe their thirst. It's a kind of thirst that sees and feels the hardships in life and pants and longs for relief from it. But where are the psalmists saying that their relief comes from? What's that life-giving remedy that the psalmists are seeking? Their enemies are ridiculing them. They're feeling like they're drowning at the hand of God. Is it freedom from these taunts? and from this drowning that they're seeking? No, instead, they see the terrible things that are happening around them, and they remember that what they need most, beyond respite from these circumstances, is an intimate connection with the living God. In this, the sons of Korah are thirsting for and bringing their complaints to the living God. They're lifting up a prayer to the God of my life, and this is an important phrase that we should pay attention to. And they're thirsting for and prayer for the living God. 
They're recognizing that God isn't some ideal or a concept, but he's a living God. One who sees the desperation that the psalmist is in, is mindful of him and cares for him. God isn't an ideal that we might try to uphold like justice or peace or comfort. He often provides these things, but he's not those things. For example, while God provides his children ultimate comfort through our Lord Jesus Christ, seeking comfort for comfort's sake is very different from seeking God. These ideals like peace, justice, comfort, and happiness, they're good, but they are not all-powerful, so the pursuit of these ideals in isolation is vanity. Recognizing this, the sons of Korah, in their situation, where it would make perfect sense to thirst and plead for relief from their enemies, instead say, my soul thirsts for God. So in light of this, let me ask you a question. What's something that is troubling you in life right now? Whether it's financial struggles, time management challenges, parenting difficulties, work stressors, broken relationships, health issues, the list goes on. The psalmists are vividly clear about the struggles that they're currently facing, and so should we be open, honest, and specific in our lamentation to God. Yet in these troubles, dear friends, what are you searching for? What are you thirsting for? Do you thirst for peace, reconciliation, restored health, sleep? These are all good things to seek. But let me encourage you that these good ideals are all temporary. Yet in all circumstances, in the good times and in the bad times, we should never lose our deepest and truest thirst for the living God. And while all of this may seem simple in theory, the reality is it's not simple. It can be hard to remember God's faithfulness, especially in the midst of our sufferings and our difficulties. And the sons of Korah aren't blind to this fact. So let's keep moving toward the middle of our psalm, and we'll see how the sons of Korah are teaching us to remember God's faithfulness in all circumstances, even when their soul is fainting. Verses 4 and 6. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Now, before directly addressing how the psalmists are teaching us to remember God's faithfulness, let's first remind ourselves of how the psalmists are feeling right now, their current emotional state. As we saw previously, they're being ridiculed by other people, and they feel like they're drowning. They're longing for God in their anguish. And here we similarly read that they're pouring out their soul, and their soul is cast down within them. The sons of Korah are in a destitute state, feeling like they're far off from God, almost beginning to wonder the very same question that their enemies were asking them, where is your God? Yet, how do they respond to this question? 
even in the face of mockery, they're actively choosing to remember the faithfulness of God in all situations, both when they're surrounded by other God-fearers in verse 4 and when they're totally isolated in verse 6. Looking at verse 4, we read that when the psalmist's soul is thirsting for God, despite everything seemingly going wrong, they're still choosing to say, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. The psalmist recognized the atrocities surrounding them, but what are they choosing to remember? They're choosing to remember when they would go to the temple with crowds of other believers, shouting and singing and joyously praising God as they neared the temple. Worshiping God together corporately, like we're doing this morning, is a beautiful gift that God has given his church. And when we make habits of going to church, of meeting together in community groups, and of having biblical conversations with each other, we're shaping our minds to be more like Christ, who, in the face of temptation from the devil himself, reminded himself of truths from God's word, and who invited his closest friends into his perfect lamentation when he was facing his coming crucifixion. He reminded himself in his friend's presence of God's sovereignty and his perfect will for his children, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If even Jesus relied on God's word in the face of temptation, if even Jesus invited his friends into his perfect lamentation and submission to God's will, how much more should we, brothers and sisters in Christ, be willing to come together and be open and honest about our struggles and encourage each other with the hope of God and the sovereignty of God? In your community groups, then, I want to challenge you not only to not hold back from pouring out your soul when life is challenging, but also to be attentive of when other people are sharing their struggles and point them back to the gospel and the hope that we have in Jesus, helping them remember, like the psalmist, the character and the love of God. And may they celebrate the Lord's faithfulness in those times too. Related to all of this, the author of Hebrews writes, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet with each other, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. But recall the former days after you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Brothers and sisters, let, me be, let us be eager to meet together and encourage one another in the face of all of our suffering. And in doing so, let us be reminded and remind each other of the joyful faithfulness of God in all circumstances, even when we are unfaithful. But what are we supposed to do when we're facing struggles and we're far away from fellow believers, or when we're unable to be in the physical company of the body of Christ? 
Verse 6 of our psalm addresses just that. The sons of Korah write, I remember you in the land of Jordan, of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. The location the psalmists are referring to where Mount Hermon, the mouth of the Jordan, and likely where Mount Mazar is thought to be, is about 100 miles away from Jerusalem. I have a map here where you've got the temple uh, about middle of the page and then to the left, and then the mountain way up top. That distance is about 100 miles away. So when the psalmists are saying that they're on Mount Hermon, when they're in the Jordan in Mount Mazar, they're 100 miles away from Jerusalem where people would gather together and worship God in community. This is about a five-day uh, journey for the ancient Israelite. And while five days doesn't seem too bad when we are in good times, when life is going well, I know that when I'm barely scraping by, five days is a long, long time. But what do the sons of Korah do here when their soul is cast down within them? when they're far from the presence of God and from other believers. Look again at verse 6 with me. They remembered God. They think back to his character, his persistent faithfulness to his people, and they recall his faithfulness and his steadfast love toward them. We, on this side of the cross, have a very distinct and powerful advantage over them when we're alone. And I'm not talking about the internet or cell phones, although those are powerful tools that we can use to connect with other believers when we're far away. But Jesus gives his followers the Holy Spirit, which is far more powerful than any technology that we can create. Let me read how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit from John 14. He says, The Holy Spirit will be your helper to be with you forever. I, Jesus continues, will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Dear Christian, even when we are far from each other, we are not alone. Jesus has promised to be with us forever. He lives and reigns over all creation and he has not left us. But he has given us the Holy Spirit to remind us of all truth. The spirit that comforted Jesus in his struggles is the same one who comforts us in our present struggles. So if you've accepted the Lord Jesus as the Lord of your life, you should be will willing to rejoice greatly for the Holy Spirit is living inside of you and he will not leave you and he will remind you of God's faithfulness, which gives you the same peace that Jesus has. So the sons of Korah have taught us to long for God in the midst of all of our earthly distress. They've taught us to remember God in all circumstances, whether we're with others or far from others. And now we get to our final point this morning, which is the main thrust of the psalmist's cry, to hope in God in all things. 
Psalm 42, verse 5, reads, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the hinge point in the structure of the psalm. It's what the sons of Korah were focused on throughout this whole time. Here, the psalmists are asking their souls, their innermost beings, in light of all the chaos of their longings for God and for his people, the terrible situations, in light of all of this, they're asking their souls, why are you cast down? What's causing you all this turmoil and trouble? And it seems to be a fair question. And to begin to answer this question, we should go back to how they described God earlier as the living God, the God of their lives. The psalmists are preaching to themselves and reminding themselves and each other of who God is. They remind themselves that God is their salvation. In spite of any earthly trouble that's going on, they still, God is still the God who lives and reigns over all creation. He's the means by which they can have hope, even in life's difficulties, when all things are looking bleak. And not only that, but he is also their God. In calling the Lord my God, the sons of Korah show their knowledge that God is a deeply personal God, one who desires a relationship with his people. God doesn't passively stand far off from us when we're suffering from our own sin, from the sins of others, or even the general effects of sin in this world. Instead, he chooses to humble himself by coming to the world and suffer the shame of the cross on our behalf. In our hopeful waiting for the Lord's return, we can be encouraged to praise him, not merely praising the salvation that he gives us through his life, death, and resurrection, but praising Jesus himself. The sons of Korah shout, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Like how their hope isn't contingent on God saving them from their situations, our hope in God, too, does not need to be contingent on God saving us from our desperate situations. Instead, our hope is based on who God is. He's our salvation, who saves us from our sins, and he's our God, who joyfully unites himself with humanity. Going back to the book of Hebrews, let's look at how the author describes how we should live in our relationship to Jesus. The author writes, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We will face suffering in our life. Yet, we're in good company. Jesus, too, endured suffering in life. And like how it was his joy to look forward to the day where all is going to be right and he's living in a perfected new creation, so, too, can we look ahead to the day where we will be joyfully united to God we can still despise the suffering that happens in the sin-marred world, yet we can patiently, eagerly, and joyfully look forward to God as our hope and our salvation. 
So let me ask you three last questions this morning. First, how can the gospel hope apply to areas that you're struggling to praise God in right now? Second, in the midst of all our hardships, are you able to remember God's deep love for you and rescuing you from the grip of sin? And third, if not, how can you remember when your soul is cast down the hope that we have in our loving God as our salvation? As we wrap up today, let's look one last time at Psalm 42, but let's do so a little more chronologically. First, we see the psalmists rise from their longing to God in the midst of a desperate situation to a profound hope in God, but then they fall back into focusing on their present struggles. And how's the psalm end? Whose voice at the end wins? Verse 11 ends this psalm by repeating the hinge point of all that's come before it. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Jesus' resurrection as the focal point of all of history, what creation has been longing for for all time, is a hope-filled act that saves us and anybody else who has an active trust in the Lord Jesus. We can point others toward the resurrection when we're blessed by the company of other believers, and we can remind ourselves with the help of the Holy Spirit of the resurrection when we are far off from others, and we can say to ourselves and to others, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. God has saved us through the work of Jesus Christ, and yes, while even after the resurrection of Jesus, the time that we're living in right now, the effects of sin are still abundant, let's never forget the good news that we have the same hope today as the sons of Korah looked forward to when they penned this psalm. That we have been given the church, the word, and the spirit to remind us of God's wonderful, gracious, and mighty acts throughout all time. And we can look forward to and place our hope in a future where heaven will meet earth, where King Jesus will triumphantly return to reign over all creation, and where everything sad will become untrue. So in the midst of our suffering, when everything seems to be falling apart, when we're longing for the living God in the midst of our distress, let us remember the great faithfulness of God, that he has already done the work of paying for our sins, and he has promised to redeem us and restore us and restore the earth. And let us place our hope in God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been and always will be faithful to his children. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for your salvation. Thank you for the encouragement that comes from your word and for the promise that you will one day return to rule over creation, and make all wrongs right. Thank you for the love that you have for your children and for your grace. Thank you for the church. Um, I pray that you will help us to have a longing for you, both in good times and in bad times, loving you and looking forward to the wonderful day when you will make all things right.
Amen.